get started, if that's okay. And I want to uh, begin by reading a scripture that I'm going to back into. I'm, so I want to read the scripture and show you how we are going to walk up to this reality. The scripture is taken from Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and the apostle writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So here's the first thing. I want to do this in five steps, um, five things that we want to kind of walk through. The first thing is this. As created beings, we are inherently in need of help. We are in need of help that is extra nos, that is outside of us. And we need help for our continued existence as well as for the fulfillment of our purpose and uh, as a sense of identity. In other words, and, and the reason for this, is the only non-needy entity is the Godhead. God is the only being that is eternally blessed and who needs nothing outside of himself in order to be happy or blessed. We need something outside of us to maintain our physical existence. In other words, no matter how great you think you are, you still need air to breathe. And air comes outside of you. You need food to eat. You need things outside of you that's within the created order in order to continue to exist. And as a sense, in a sense, in order to maintain one's purpose. One of the first things that's said of Adam after his creation, it's not good for man to be alone. So therefore, we have, in order for Adam to fulfill his purpose, he needed Eve. In order for Eve to fulfill her purpose, she needed Adam. They both needed something and someone outside of themselves for their physical existence, their continued existence, and the fulfillment of their purpose. So that's where we begin. Man, as a created being, is inherently in need of help, which means... Help, in a very generic sense, does not mean a person is deficient or necessarily wrong. It simply means we are dependent beings. We are dependent on something and someone outside of ourselves in order to exist and in order to achieve. Here's the second thing. Being created in the image of God... We are intended for community. Being created beings means that we are inherently in need of assistance or help outside of us. But being created in the image of God, we are also, by necessity, intended to be in community with other image bearers of God. Now, again, going back to the creation of Adam, we are told not only is it not good for man to be alone, but before the creation, God says, let us create man in our image. And in the likeness of, man, of God did he create them, male and female, he created them. So we are created to be in community with fellow image bearers of God. 
And as such, what that means is that we are not just to be in community, but we are also, as we learn from the second table of the law, we are created to love others who are image bearers of God as we love ourselves. I mean, that's just part of the way we are created. Jesus illustrates this in the story of the Good Samaritan. The love that God requires of us as his image bearers is to love other image bearers as we would love ourselves. So Jesus demonstrates this by showing a person in need and showing a person who has been ostracized, and we'll look at the effects of the fall in a moment, but someone who has been otherized by cultural and various conditions, and he is the one who extends the help. And then Jesus raises this very important question. Who is this man's neighbor? And it's the one who extends the help. We see as early as as Genesis chapter 4, the question that is put to Cain, um, where's your brother? And his response, am I my brother's keeper? Well, two things there. One, we have to see, even though he's talking about a biological brother, we have to see a likeness in another image bearer which also mandates relationship. Secondly, that we are obligated in answer to Cain's question, am I my neighbor's keeper? The answer that God expresses is yes. And that's what Jesus demonstrates with the story of the Good Samaritan. The rabbi who had the Mosaic law, he sees someone who is a stranger and in help, and he crosses on the other side. The, the same thing, the, the Pharisee, that, you know, or the, uh, the Levite, he tr- crosses on the other side because he doesn't see the person in need as a neighbor slash brother, and therefore he does not see himself as obligated. So here's, we, here's where we stand. Two things. As created beings, we are inherently in need of something outside of ourselves for our continued existence and even to define our purpose. Because what is our purpose? The most famous catechetical question in historic in, in Protestantism, question number one in the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So how does one enjoy and glorify God? By doing what we were created to do and be who we were created to be, which includes being in community with other image bearers so that we see individuals who are like us as being like us because we are equally beholden to God and we are equal image bearers to God. That's in creation. So we are created with a purpose, and we are created in community. And we carry out that purpose by being in community, and that's how we glorify God. And the implication is that by glorifying God, by doing what we were created to do, there is fellowship, there is unity, there is enjoyment. So how do we enjoy God? By doing and being what we are supposed to be and happy to do it. So those are the first two things. What we were created for, which is to be in need or in inherent neediness of humanity and 
this sense of community that's built into our being created in the, in the image of God. Well, this brings us then to the pivot point. There's a song that I enjoyed from Steve Winwood, roughly around 1980, early 80s, and it was the, it was the title of a song as well as an album. But the thing that triggered me was the single line, the ark of a diver. And I thought about it when I heard it, and the ark of a diver, ark of a diver. What, and so he, by diver, he means someone who is a high diver. And here's what happens in high diving. You jump up, and then, so you ascend, and then you descend. So there's a moment when you stop ascending and you begin to descend, and that's the moment that the ark is formed. It's only there for a moment, but it's the turning point. It's, it, it, shifts, it shifts what's taking place. The, the diver is no longer going up, but now he begins to come down. And that single fraction of a second moment is what Steve Winwood chose to name a song about and a whole album. So let's look at the arc of the diver. So in creation, the two fundamental propositions that we've already set forth is that, number one, we are dependent beings by virtue of our being created. And we are created, therefore, in need of help. And as the image bearers of God, we are obligated to help other image bearers. But then comes the pivot point. Then comes the arc of the diver. And this is what shifts us from creation to corruption. I want to frame this. I want to frame, I want to frame this, this, this shift into corruption in the language of James. Okay, here's what James says in James chapter 1. You're probably familiar with it as he talks about temptation, verses 14 and 15. He says, but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin... When it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, let's revisit this. Let's go back to what we know about the temptation. The temptation in general is an appeal to human desire. That's basically what it is. It's an appeal to human desire. Here's what we read in Genesis 3.5. The serpent tells Eve, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the of, of uh, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Theologians across the spectrum have suggested that whatever else the original sin included, whatever else it was, it included a desire. To be like God. In other words, there's the ark of the diver. There's the point when Adam, because you can imagine, there's the point in which Adam is content. The image bearers of God are content. At this point, they are content. In fact, Genesis 2 ends what I call the first, it ends with the first rap song. 
when Adam is, is presented with Eve, he looks at her and he breaks into rhyme. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the two shall be called one. So he breaks into this wonderful song. And then Moses tells us that they were naked and unashamed. That's the way chapter 2 ends. But then it says that before she ate, that the woman looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was always pleasant to the eyes. And then it says that when they did eat, their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. So obviously no new information enters into the realm. What happens is not they see for the first time, but it's how they see one another. And the first, we talk about Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. The first thing they hide is from one another because they see each other differently. Because now the community that is, that is part of the created intent has been hindered. The fellowship, the neediness is what they rejected and that becomes the Ark of the Diver. The point at which it became desirable on their part to be equal with God is the ark of the diver. So even before the fruit is eaten, and I'm convinced, as my wife will tell you, and she'll smirk when I say this, I'm convinced that it wasn't, it wasn't an apple. I'm pretty sure it was a banana. <laughs> nastiest fruit on the face of the earth. So I'm pretty convinced it was a banana. But in any event, here's what happens. They eat, and therefore the first sinful act was, a des was born out of a desire to be equal with God. So eating the fruit was equivalent to seeking help from other, someone other than the creator and seeking help from something outside of the created order in order to be, or actually in seeking help to be what they wanted to be rather than what they were created to be, if that makes sense. What is help? So here's the first, here's the first gesture of seeking help outside of self, but also outside of God. The reason they ate the fruit is because the fruit would help them become something other than what they were created to be. So there's, there's the ark. Now that we've, we've, so we've gone from this ascent, we've seen the ark with the decision, and now we have the descent. So having looked at what we were created for, which is we are as creatures, created beings who are inherently needy, and seeing that we were created for community and that we are to see other image bearers as being equal to ourselves and therefore we are to love them as we love ourselves, then we have the pivot. And the pivot is to, is to instead of being subservient to God, to be equal with him. And this is what throws us into the fall. And that's what brings us to the fourth thing, which is the fallen condition. Now, I want to look at four things in particular 
related to the fallen condition. Because we want to work our way back to what Peter says. The first thing is this, the fallen condition. What is the fallen condition? And we don't want to, I'm not going to get into all of the, the morality and spirituality of it. Here's what we know. We are fallen, therefore, into a state of being at odds with God. We are morally impure. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's the condition. But I want to look at the, the consequences or some, some other departments of that. What, what does it mean in broader terms? To be fallen in the first place means we have an identity crisis. And in fact, I'm going to say identity crisis slash God complex. And the reason I put it that way, and it's interesting, the last, discussion, the last talk that we just had, the last plenary session, she talked about people looking for or putting themselves in the position of God. Here's what I would argue. The reason for this is because the fall of Adam has etched us so that it's in all of us. It's, it's marked all of us with a God complex to whatever degree. So in other words, that rebellion against God is now burnt into our DNA. It manifests itself differently and in a, along a whole spectrum, whether people are just claiming themselves to be God or substituting someone else in its place. And the reason is because we have an identity crisis. And certainly if one thinks that we are God or we think that someone else is God, then we are not what and who we were created to be. And we'll see how that is, is played out in the gift of the gospel. But we begin in the fallen condition with an identity crisis. I think it was G.K. Chesterton that says that when God, the idea of God is lost amongst the people, it's not that they become atheists and don't believe in any God, but everything becomes God. A number of years ago, uh, I was doing a conference in Nigeria and uh, we would have each morning, uh, it was a five-day conference, and each morning we, had, we would have one of the local pastors to give a devotional message. And I never will forget, one brother gets up and he says, in Africa, nothing works. Now, of course, this was about our fourth or fifth trip, and we'd seen uh, power go out. And we'd seen all kind of things where they do, they, things just didn't work properly. That's what he meant. Things don't work. And he says, and because things don't work, we as Africans have a tendency to worship anything that can make something work. He says, in America, everything works. So they have a tendency to worship everything. <laughs> in our fallen state, not only are we sinful, and because, as Paul says, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, which means we do not carry out the purpose for which he created us. We have rebelled against it. But in rebelling against it, the reason we do is because we have inherited from Adam, and it plays itself out at different levels and in different individuals. We, like Adam, are rebelling against the purpose for which we were created. And therefore, we have a God complex where to whatever degree 
we either ascribe to ourselves divine prerogatives or we ascribe to others divine power and prerogatives that are not genuine within them. And so Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, speaking of the fallen condition, that even though everything that could be known about God has been revealed, that we have instead worshipped the the creature rather than the creator. And that's part of Adam and Eve desiring to be like God. The result is instead of being like God, they themselves have taken upon themselves the prerogatives of God. And they have ascribed, and what they passed on to the rest of us is a DNA that rebels against the idea of Godness that is not within us or in our control. We are like the perpetual toddler. You are not the boss of me. So that's the first thing about the fall. Here's the second thing. Also, because of that, in our fallen condition, we are in search, we are in a perpetual search for purpose and significance. Because we are redefining ourselves and and our identity, our identity is as such, we're not content at being created beings who are inherently needy of something and someone outside of themselves for their existence and defining our purpose according to what God has given. So now we need a reason to exist. Now that's a healthy thing before the fall because we do need a reason to exist. We need a reason to get up in the morning. We need a reason to go to work other than just to pay the bills. There is something within us that we cannot escape where we are in search of significance. A friend of mine, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we did radio together for a number of years, Michael Horton, um, founder of Modern Reformation and uh, founder of, of White Horse Sin. Uh, we had a discussion once about this and talking about our fallen, the man's desire to be different things. And he says this, he says, the reason that man is always, always has misguided conceptions of glory and self-promotion is because we were created for glory. And so what's been lost is not the desire, but what has happened as a result of the fall is the corruption of that desire. We are created with significance for a great purpose, But in our fallen state, we still have the desire, but we are now corrupt. I can't help but think of Blanche Dubois from a a streetcar named Desire, living in the glory days of her past and desiring to be what she was as a young woman, and she is no longer that. But the desire is still there. And likewise, for us in our fallen states, we who now have a, an identity crisis in terms, in terms of understanding who we are and a God complex in putting something in someone, making someone God other than the God of the Bible. We also have a problem in our search for significance because we're trying to find significance to 
re, uh, to, to kind of twist the words of Kenny Rogers, we're trying to find significance in all the wrong places. In fact, it was Andy Warhol that says that, that, we, uh, that in the future, he was speaking futuristically, everyone will have 15 minutes of fame. And now everyone is looking for 15 minutes of fame and more. So what is our search for significance in our fallen state? Again, it's nothing wrong with social media and all of these different things, but some people are defining their significance and purpose by their number of followers, by the number of likes. There has never been a category, a, a vocational category called social influencer. Until now. Why? Because people are looking for significance. Do you realize how long reality shows have been on television? And do you realize how unreal reality shows are? <laughs> so everything from, from our own, the, our, the worst of our instincts, where all people are trying to do is be seen. Now, again, it comes from a healthy place, but it's the corruption of something that was intended to be healthy. So having a God complex and an identity crisis, we are now searching for purpose and we're searching for, for significance apart from our dependence on the creator and apart from our connection to other image bearers of God that causes us to see our neighbors as being worthy of our love. But here's the third thing. Therefore, in light of that last statement, rather than loving neighbor as self, we have now put our, image, our fellow image bearers in different categories that allow us and justify us in not loving them as ourselves. In fact, our interaction, not always, not completely, but our interaction oftentimes among fallen sinners, our interaction with other image bearers of God either becomes transactional, what you can do for me, or it becomes tribal. And that I like you because you are this, that, and the other. And you can, whatever the tribe is, it's amazing how we see it played out in, in, in the media in different ways on both sides of the political spectrum. That people are not people anymore. It's either red state or blue state. You're either this or you're that. And if you're this then, and, then, and you're not this and you're that instead, then somehow that allows me to otherize you from being my neighbor. So if I have done something in the past, I remember my wife and I grew up in the same church. We came to know each other at about the age of 12. We had a young man in our church who was in, part, in charge of um, collecting the money for Sunday school. And it was a student. They would send him around to different Sunday school classes to collect the offerings. And one particular Sunday, they realized that the totals on the envelopes didn't match what he had brought in. And it became clear that this boy has stolen money school, uh, Sunday school money. Years later, and he went on to do a lot of different things, years later as he grew up, and he couldn't have been because he's younger than us, so if we're 12, 13, he's 10, 11 years old, 
Here he is in high school. And everyone that knew what he had done, when they would talk about him, they couldn't talk about him apart from he's the one who stole. And so somehow recognizing his guilt justifies in seeing him as a brother. Because all they could see is he's the one who stole that Sunday school money. Well, you know he stole the Sunday school money. And aren't we all prone to this in our fallen state? That we look at people based on the way, where they live, the way they dress, and we make assumptions. I did an interview a number of years ago with a radio station, I forget who it was, and this was after, um, I think it was after, after a shooting of a young black man in Orlando, Florida. And uh, the question came up about, oh, no, it wasn't, it was a police shooting. It was, it was a police shooting. And the question came up about, well, you know, what's, and it was a lot of racial tension and so forth. And so they were asking me about it. And I said, well, yeah, it is a, it's a racial problem, but it's not just a black and white issue. I said, here's the problem that I see. It's over-aggressive policing among a particular demographic. Because when you see this person of this demographic, you don't see them in the same way you see someone else. The example that I would give is at the time, well, I have one son. We have one son. He's a grown man now. But growing up, I, I, right now, I drive a, a, a Volvo. And if my son at 16 was seen driving through the neighborhood at 15, 16, driving the Volvo, he might get pulled over. In fact, he's more likely to be pulled over. Now, if someone of a different ethnicity, 16-year-old, driving a Volvo through a particular neighborhood, you know what the first assumption is? Driving his parents' car. The issue is this. Because of our fallenness, we do not see others through the lens of them being our neighbor. We don't see them as brothers. We see them as suspects. We see them as being untrustworthy. We see them through the lens of either someone else's experience or we see them through what we've been told, the lens that we've been told to see them as. So you see a young man come into, doesn't matter what color, comes into a, a place with spiked hair and cut off a leather jacket or Levi jacket and tattoos all up and down his arms. You don't even know what the tattoos are, but you know you're supposed to be afraid. Why? Because of our fallenness. Our fallen state tells us that unless you are already in our tribe and unless you are our relationship is transactional and that you affirm me, then you are other. So here's what we have. In our fallen condition, we have an identity crisis and we have a God complex. Because having desired to be like God, our foreparents left us in a condition where we don't trust the God who created us. We are in competition with him. Likewise, because of our fallen state, we have a search for identity so that we are seeking to be something other than what we are created for and something that is different from everyone else. And likewise, because of our fallen condition, our view of others is either transactional 
largely, or tribal. And it doesn't, and, and the amazing thing is, we don't give any benefit of the doubt for those who are other, and we look a thousand times away from the indiscretions of those that are in our tribe. And whatever it is they did, it couldn't have been that because they're not over there. Here's the fourth thing. In our fallen state, there is a vulnerability for anything or anyone that affirms us. In other words, in whether we are in our created state or in our state of corruption, we are in need of help. We need it at every level. I like the way that Paul describes the fallen condition, the fallen condition in Ephesians 4, when he tells the Ephesian believers to not walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk according to the darkness of their mind. There's a native darkness to our understanding in our fallen state. Jesus expresses it this way. He says, when the darkness, when the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? I never fully understood that statement until I used to work for a brief period in Hollywood as, as a craft service person, which means you're on the movie set providing water and whatever that people need. And I would work, go in sometimes to the dressing room, and you know how they have the, the dressing room lights with the lights all over? And the reason for that, is because when you get up in the morning, the light in your bathroom that you get dressed by and that you put your makeup on by, it's good, but trust me, it's not like the lights of a ca on a camera set. And so here's what would happen is people would go in and they think that they are, they are good and then they look at themselves under that other light. <laughs> it's like, I must have gotten dressed in the dark. And so it is, what, what Jesus is saying, it's not that you don't have light. You think you have light and you think you're understanding things. He said, but when that light is darkness, then how great is the light? And think about it, brothers and sisters. If the light that you're looking through allows you to see an image bearer of God only in terms of their deeds, only in terms of what they can do for you, then how dark is that light? If, you, if, they are not, if they are somehow less than an image bearer of God, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a Pollyannish kind of person. I grew up in South Central. I know that there, there, are, there are people that are not good, but they don't stop being image bearers of God. Doesn't mean that you, you trust everyone to the same degree, but here's the point. In our fallen state, we allow ourselves to be co-opted and we become vulnerable to all of the things that would help us. And so what is, it the, help, what is the help then that we are receiving? The help that we look for and the help that is readily available is along one of two lines. It either reinforces the fallen atom that is in all of us or it seeks to take the place of God. Now, here's what I mean about this. Whatever, if we're fallen morally or, or totally depraved in historic Protestantism, 
All of the help in the world is made available to you to be the worst you you can be. That's what we're seeing, especially with with, with stuff being so readily available. Whatever your worst, most perverse desire is, you get help from it. And people will help you be what you are not supposed to be, but you have defined yourself to be, and we're vulnerable for it. I love the presentation that we just heard because we are reminded that people are seeking identity and God-like virtues from exercise and wellness and so forth. Why? Because they think that's, ma- that's what makes them the best them. And so outside of Christ, we're out in our fallen state, we are seeking anything that affirms us in our fallen state. And our problem is that it's available. It doesn't take you long. Just you're a click away from your worst impulse being justified. You just, you're you're one, one reality television away. You are one diet away from anything that promotes itself as being what you need in order to be you. I do think that we have uh, various challenges, cultural challenges across the board, but the thing that gets me are those who are just proud to be against what is supposed to be right. There's almost a defiance. And so here's the thing. Again, the fallen condition, we know that we are fallen, dead in trespasses and sins, but being dead in trespasses and sins ultimately means that in our fallen state, Our identity will never correspond to what God intended it to be. And it also means that we will have a God complex where we will ascribe to ourselves or others divine prerogatives, divine attributes that should be and worship that should go to the one God that it will be spread among many. It means that we have a search for purpose and significance. And it's amazing the damage that's been done so that by some people so they could be known. If a serial killer has killed 50 people, then someone wants to kill 51. Why? Because it makes us known across the spectrum. Again, our relationships with others will be tribal. We will deal with those who deal with us. We see it, by the way, even in the church where we are tribal and we only want relationships with those who look like us and so forth, and we only ascribe significance to those who are of our tribe, or it's transactional, what can you do for me? And being fallen also means we're vulnerable to anything that will help us be the best fallen Adam that we could possibly be. The worst of our instincts, the worst of our impulses are reinforced in that fallen area. Now, that's what brings us to the gospel. And I would argue that what we have in the gospel, and by the way, the gospel, generically speaking, is the good news of God's saving purpose and power through the person and work of his son. And what that means is not only does Jesus die for our sins, but Jesus lived for our righteousness And the humanity that we are supposed to present to the Father is manifest in him. So he gives us the credit for his righteousness. He's taken the penalty for our sins. And his life 
is the life that we now live. So therefore, let me look at three things that we gain from the gospel in light of what we just read from Peter. One, the gospel gives us a new identity. And that identity allows us to rejoice in the fact that we are the people of God. Remember, we lost our identity in the fall. The gospel gives us a new identity. And the reason I couple it this way, that it gives us a new identity that allows us to rejoice in the knowledge that we are now the people of God, that's the very thing that Adam rebelled against. He didn't want to be the people of God. He wanted to be God. Here's the way John puts it. What manner of love is this? That God, that we should be called the children of God. And it's because we are the children of God, we delight to do the will of God. Look at the way this transaction or this transition takes place with the prodigal son. When he was in his father's house, he wasn't content. He wanted more than that. When he rebelled against his father and then went into the the world and wasted all of his money and he's in a pig pen and then he decides when the pig food looks good to him, he decided it was time to go home. And you know what he wanted to do? Go home and be a servant. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that before the fall, Adam was able to worship God in spirit and in truth Pleased to be a creature. The amazing thing about uh, the creation of man, we know that he's created on the sixth day. The seventh day is Sabbath. So he's supposed to rest. He rests before he goes to work. We work, we work and then rest. So obviously resting is not because he's tired. But the resting, the ceasing is to contemplate the creator. And in that pure sense, Adam was able to offer the same kind of worship that the unfallen angels offer in Revelation 4. Praise and glory unto God who has created all things. By him, all things consist. And so therefore, before the fall, Adam was able to understand God and glorify God as creator. But here's what has happened. We know that we've fallen. What the gospel allows us to do is to go back home, knowing that we are undeserving, willing to be, willing to be what we were supposed to be by creation. And that is, brothers and sisters, to be a servant of the creator, God, is, it doesn't, it's, it's nothing demeaning about that. And so the, the, the son goes back home And he says, you know what? The servants in my father's house are better treated. They eat better than this. I want to be in my father's house. And he goes back home. And he, as he's on his way home, he sees the father standing there waiting to receive him. Not washing his face with what he's done. Not saying, here, I've got, all the, I've got all the texts of what you've done. I've got all the Instagram pictures of you showing out. <laughs> Living out loud. But the father goes and greets him. Takes a coat and, and put it on him. 
puts a ring on his finger. And when the jealous son wants to say, oh, but you know what he did, the father says, no, we rejoice because he who was dead is now made alive. Brothers and sisters, every time we come into the presence of God and we are able to offer acceptable worship, it is because we have one who has gone for us and has gained us access so now we can do the will of God. Our worship is now acceptable to him. And the reasonable service of living to him is not the reason we, it, 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 listen, the re- we, we serve him not out of dread. As Paul tells the, the Ephesians, as dear children, as dear children of the, of the Heavenly Father, now render yourself. Now live unto him like dear children, children of light. So here's what the gospel gives us. The gospel gives us a new identity. No matter what you were, now in Christ, you are the beloved of God. In Christ, you are the righteousness of God. In Christ, God sees you. It's a beautiful thing. God sees you not through what you did, but he sees you through his son. And so there is nothing that you can do for him that is not accepted by him. And whereas others are looking for something else for you to be enough, God says you're enough. He loves you. He accepts you. I like what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, who can bring any charge against God to let you think about that? It's not that people don't have juicy stuff to say. And it's not that the juicy stuff might not be true. But here's what's true for those who have received the gospel. Because notice what Peter says. He's giving you everything that pertains to life and godliness. The gossip against us is not gossip. It might be true. But here's what we have. A wounded Savior says that that which is true, that is against the law of God, that's true about us, is paid for in these wounds. And so God doesn't hear the accusation of your parents, your community, others who are in other tribes. He doesn't hear that. What he hears are the wounds of his son. And he sees you through those wounds. And you know what he says? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. We have a new identity that we are for now and evermore the children of God. And there is nothing that can change that. And the reason we love him and the reason we serve him is because he's received us. 
My father used to have a, had a cousin when we were growing up. His name was Grady. And every time Grady came to the house, I had two sisters. He would give us a block of juicy fruit gum. And we could not wait. When, whenever He would just stop by randomly. And every time he came by, he gave us juicy fruit gum. It was like Pavlov's dogs. You know, we... <laughs> We see Grady's car, we start juicing at the mouth for juicy fruit gum. Because Grady was the juicy fruit man. And what I didn't realize at the time is that one of the reasons he would come by our house is because he was also a part-time TV repairman. And he'd come by to repair the TV. But all we knew is he was the juicy fruit man. And if he ever disappointed, because we associated Grady with juicy fruit. Brothers and sisters, we somehow, sometimes, in our fallen state, because of the depths of our fallenness, we look at God only in terms of what he gives, in terms of tangible things. But God is more than the juicy fruit man. God is the God who loves us in spite of us. And he's given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Now here's what's what's real. Our struggles are real. Our sins are real. We still have an issue with some folk. But we are the beloved of God. And we do not go to him to get more juicy fruit. We go to him because he's given us everything. I don't want to step on religious toes, but let me just tell you this. You don't need, if your faith is in Christ... You don't need anything or anyone outside of what God has already given you in Christ to be fulfilled. There's no amount of oil. There is no blessing line that you can get in. There is nothing that you need to write down or do. You need to sit down and rest and know that he's given you everything necessary for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel gives us. That is the help that we need because it takes care of our original problem and it takes us into eternity. Here's the second thing. The gospel gives us the ability to discern what is good help from what is not good help. Because now, our point of reference is that which reinforces who we are in Christ versus our old Adam. Here's the way Paul puts it. In Colossians 3, he, or Colossians 4, he says, listen, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. And then he says, because you have died. And your life is hidden in Christ. Therefore, he says, put to death the deeds of the flesh that remain within you. 
you now have the ability, doesn't mean you're always going to follow through on it, but now in Christ, because you have received the gospel, all help is not good help. Just because you can beat your chest and just because you have a whole community that says, I'm with you, doesn't mean it's good help. What we now have the ability to do in Christ is discern good help from unhealthy help. Again, our news sources, our social media circles will reinforce sometimes the worst in in us. Anybody ever grew up with that, that slogan where people would say, you're going to make me lay down my religion? You, you hear that? Anybody remember that? Yeah, you're going to make me lay down my religion. Christ is nothing you can lay down. So if we act, and what they're saying basically is you're going to make me act inconsistent with the way I ought to act. What we now have the ability to do is called baloney on stuff that's supposed to help us, but it can't help us. We don't always act consistently with that. But here's what the gospel does. It allows us to discern what is good help from what is not good help. There are some things that we sometimes feel empowered to do that help us deal with certain issues of the past that's not necessarily good. I love what David said last night. Therapy can be a good thing. And for so long, churches have been standoffish about therapy. But we now have the ability to discern good therapeutic help from not good therapeutic help. Does it, does it enforce, reinforce my ability to do the will of God? Does it allow me to serve him and glorify him? Or does it reinforce that which is contrary to God's law? There was a show that came on back in, think, I think, the 80s or 90s, and it was about um, people who were bullied in school, and then they became, uh, they became, I guess, they went from nerds to winners or whatever it was. And it was about pe- bringing people onto the show that used to bully them so that they could now say, now look at me. Brothers and sisters, here's what's good. If, if a nerd all of a sudden does gain some sense of identity and empowerment, that's good. What's not good is making light of those who are becoming the bully of the bullier. Uh, Michael Jordan, I love him as a basketball player, but he has some flaws and did some things publicly. And I just think that it's kind of, we need to take a look at. For instance, when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame, he flew, he, everybody knows the story of how he had been cut from his high school basketball team. And when he was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame, or Basketball Hall of Fame, he found the person that he was cut for, flew them to his Hall of Fame induction so that he could tell the world, they cut me for him. That's not good help. (laughs) That's not good. On the other hand, Allen Iverson came into the NBA. In fact, he came, went to Georgetown because he had been gotten into a brawl in high school at a bowling alley, was thrown in jail, and people did, he was a two-sport star in high school, football and basketball. And when he got thrown into jail, 
All of a sudden, the colleges didn't want to hear from him. Georgetown was the one college that stuck it out and offered him a scholarship. And John Thompson took him under his wing and nurtured him and loved him. And so Allen Iverson came into the NBA, big baggy clothes at the time and earrings and all kinds of jewelry and everybody. In fact, they changed the dress code because they didn't like the way he dressed on the road. <laughs> and yet, when Allen Iverson was inducted into the Hall of Fame, it, it, he, didn't, he didn't get up and say, look at me, you said I couldn't do anything. No, what he did he had been helped by a man who loved him. And he gave honor to John Thompson for believing him and believing in him when no one else would. And then he called off the names of players that were on his team that barely played. Anybody remember Eric Snow? Not many. Allen Iverson gave him a shout out in his Hall of Fame speech. Here's what I'm saying. The gospel gives us the ability to discern help that promotes our being in the image of Christ. And it discerns help, helps us to discern from help that would cause us to live in the old Adam. We don't always follow it, but we have the ability. Here's the third and final thing. The gospel re-empowers us to love and to extend help to others. In other words, here's what Paul says in Ephesians. He says that we are knitly joined together with each joint supplying strength to the other as each one does its part. The gospel connects us to others within the body of Christ so that we see ourselves as one with them. And then Paul goes on to exhort, do good to all men as you have the opportunity and especially to the household of faith. The gospel is the means by which we can break the mold so that we don't see people by a political or social, a social demographic, but what we see are neighbors so that we are now empowered to extend whatever our neighbors need. It's tragic, the things that we've seen over the last few weeks about because people see something other than a neighbor. A man sees a five-foot-eight, 16-year-old boy as being a giant who's a threat behind a closed door because he doesn't see a neighbor. A man sees a woman turning in his driveway and he sees a threat because he doesn't see a neighbor. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, it doesn't put rose-colored glasses on us. We know that we are sinners and we live in a world full of sinners, but the gospel is what allows us to see one another as neighbors. In the last few years, especially in light of what's been going on politically, I've tried to make it a point that whether it's red or blue, a person who believes in the person and work of Christ for their salvation, they will not know where I stand politically because that's not their business. 
One of the first things that I did when I came to the church, where I, the last two churches where I served, is remove the American flag from the sanctuary. So that it would be clear that we are the people of God. And wherever you fall along the political divide, that you would see yourself first as crucified with him and raised with him. So that whether you are red or blue or somewhere in between, when you come into the house of God, you are being announced as his children. And your responsibility is not to uphold a platform, party, or person other than the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, let me return to what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence. What the gospel gives is the help that we need so that we could live to the glory of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a new identity. Now we are not afraid of God being God. We're not afraid of neighbors. We know that we are connected to them because we are committed to him. The gospel gives us a new identity. You are the children of God. One last thought before I close. This was recent a few years, a couple years ago, we baptized a young man. He was about 21 years old and he was about to receive his first communion the following week. And he came into my office before church and he says, Pastor, I, I, I can't receive communion. And I said, why not? He says, well, I did some things last week and I'm ashamed of it. And, and I, I just, I know I'm not worthy. And so I said, sit down. I said, do you believe that Jesus lived for your righteousness? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he was raised from the grave on the third day? And is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. He could barely lift. He says, yes, I believe. I said, no, don't give me any buts. If you believe that, then you shut up. You get your behind back out there in the sanctuary, and when the elements come, you eat, and I want you to hear your heavenly Father say, you are my beloved son, and I love you. Eat. Drink. This is the body that was broken for you, and this is the blood that was shed. The help that we need is never changing, and it's always good, and it always has application, and the help that we need has been given in the gospel of his grace, which is sealed by the blood of his son. Let's pray. God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for reminding us that in spite of our continued rebellion, rejecting what you have made clear, denying what you have given us, you have loved us with an everlasting love. 
We need help. And you've given it. Strengthen us to receive that help and to walk in its light and to show it forth wherever we go. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for every precious moment of his life which is credited to us. Thank you for every precious drop of his blood which has purged us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for the wounds that he will bear throughout all eternity so that we could have bodies that are immortal and incorruptible. Thank you for his present reign. And thank you for his sure return. Help us to see the help that you've given us. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.